Hello, good people. It's Laura. It's just me today. I'm doing my second solo riff on the pod. And I'm really excited about what I want to talk about today, which is some learnings, some wisdom, some collected works from having achieved seven years of sobriety last week. And I was saying, as I was rounding the corner on the seven years, I was remarking to my boyfriend and friends that it felt different. I don't particularly actually love my anniversaries. Uh, They've always felt, which is something I'm gonna talk about. They've always felt either anticlimactic or even not great. I feel a little wobbly. I feel anxious. And this is something I hear a lot from people in recovery, that anniversaries can feel, especially the early ones for me, were more a source of anxiety. I, I relived a lot of the, it's, it's almost as if the body, the body remembers. And I think it does. We, we are taken back and we relive some things that were really deeply painful and it's not always the best experience. But this, sev- this time, it, f- it did feel, it felt good. And it felt more than good, it felt significant. And I got curious about why that was. And I started to write down you know, the things that I have, the most important things that I've gathered in that time both in preparation for this this show, but also just for myself to, to sort of process what was happening. In my newsletter, if you're a subscriber, I have been talking, I talked this week about a question that has come up for me a lot in the past six months, which is what is enough? And this idea, this realization really that it is the nice little life in my book that I talk about, that I, that I want, that it is not more and more success, more achievement, more followers, more money, more just further expansion outward. I chased that for a long time and really all my life, but, but I, even in sobriety, you know, and there were good reasons for that. There was a time and place for that. Uh, I, I had to rebuild a life as many do in sobriety and the energy was one of outward expansion. And the, what I, what I talk about in, in the newsletter was this concept that, uh, Carl Jung had come up with about the first and second half of life, that the first half of life is all about outward expression, achievement, significance, success, and claiming one's identity and really expressing that outward into the world. And that there is, it's necessary. There's a time and a place and a need for that. And then the second half of life is about inward experience, about spiritual experience, about moving the lens 
from the out <clears throat> the outside world towards the inner life and that what gave us what gives us meaning in that first half of life and what is even true for us in that first half of life is not are not the things that give us meaning in the second half and are not and, and what are not you know, they those things are not even true for us that the playbook is different in the second half and i i heard about that i heard that long ago 15 years ago i remember wayne dyer talking about it uh anyone who references young's work seems to reference that and it's always been an interesting concept to me and one that that i would reflect on where i was and there's no magical age by the way it's not you know in your first 30 years you're in the first half and in the second 30 or whatever you're in the second now it, some people reach the afternoon of life as it is also otherwise called or the second half really early on they get initiated into some difficult circumstances or something that requires deep transformation and some people stay in that first half for their entire life so I've been thinking a lot about that. I think that has a lot to do with the phase that I'm in. And that's reflected in a lot of the things that I have, that I'm bringing to you today. <clears throat> so I started out with thinking there would be seven things in seven years. And I realized that was way too many to go deep on. Uh, so we're doing four, four things in seven years of sobriety that I wanna talk about and share. And that's the program for today. So just to put a pin in the moment in time where this started, September 28th, 2014, I was working at an advertising agency as a vice president of client services. I was an account person, which is like the, um, if you're equating it to Mad Men, I was, oh God, I can't even, what, Roger? Or he was one of the partners. Don Draper is in creative. Uh, there were many people that were account folks. They're the ones, oh no, Don Draper. Yeah. It's, okay. Stay with me. Don Draper was a creative guy, sort of the mad genius, the one who, you know, gets to do the sexy selling and then Roger was more of an account person, the one who had to actually face the clients. That was me. And I'd been doing, I'd been in that world for 15 years. I had a Alma, my daughter was six at the time. And I was living in a little apartment with her and I was separated, but not yet divorced. We had been separated for a couple of years at that point, but we just hadn't gone through the, the act of finalizing paperwork, dragging our heels on that. And I was in a horrific financial state, high and just under $200,000 in debt. And I did not own a home. Things were, things were pretty messy and I had been trying to get sober for over a year and stakes were pretty high. And that night 
well, that morning of September 28th in 2014, I woke up in my apartment. Uh, my brother and my sister-in-law were in town for my mom's 60th birthday party. It was a surprise for her and Alma was also with us. And I woke up, <clears throat> we had not gone out the night before. We had, we, <clears throat> you know, I, because they were there, I was home, but I had been drinking and I woke up with just the worst anxiety I had ever, ever, ever felt. And I, you all, I had felt crippling panic attack levels of anxiety many times. But this felt worse, I think, because I had witnesses in my home and they knew I was, you know, they were very, I was not supposed to be drinking, let's put it that way. So there was all kinds of shame and and I had a lot to do that day. I had to go to the airport to pick up family for the party and there was all th kinds of things to get ready and we had to go to a soccer game really early that morning for my daughter and I had to be in front of all kinds of people and play like I was feeling great on a Saturday morning and so on and on and on and on. And the anxiety was just horrific. And I felt that morning uh, and really all day, I thought I can't have one more day like this or it will kill me. I won't make it. I absolutely can't feel this way ever again. And at the same time, I also promised myself, well, I didn't promise, it was more of a, I'm not going to promise, I'm gonna do something different than what I'd done hundreds of times before. Is I, I didn't say I'm never gonna drink again. I didn't say that because I didn't believe it. I just said, I'm not gonna do it today. And I made it through that day in that way and seven years worth of days since then. It's important to say, especially for those who are listening and in early sobriety or trying to get there, that I I don't have to have that vigilance anymore that I did then. I don't have to think about not drinking. I don't have to promise myself that I won't drink today. It's not like that anymore. But it was for a while, and by a while, I mean a year into two years that I, that I had to make a conscious effort to stay sober. And I say that not to discourage anyone. I say that because that is the reality for a lot of people. And I think it's really, if, you, if it's still hard for you, it's easy to think that there's something wrong, but there's nothing wrong. It takes a long time to, how do they say it, put that toothpaste back in the tube or to, uh, to unring that bell. It takes a long time and that's okay. It's a lot of what I'm gonna talk about today. So that's where I was on September 28th, 2014. And these are the four things that I want to tell you today, looking back seven years later. The first one is there are no shortcuts. And anything that feels like a shortcut is probably a trap, another trap. It might work for a while. It might feel good for a while. 
It might distract you enough for a while. It might give you the illusion of health or success or progress. But at the end of the day, there are no shortcuts to sustained health, to peace, and to creating meaning and a life that you want to live in. So I, the reality is it, we're all going to chase things that feel like shortcuts, especially in the beginning, because, man, you just got to make it through the days. But what I'm talking, what, what I'm talking about is, you know, I chased, I chased just about anything except drinking. Relationships, I chased body stuff. So if I just lose the weight and fix my body or I cut sugar or I cut carbs, I mean, the, the body stuff was endless. If I um, become really successful, if I, get, if I get these really quick wins on social media or I make money here or, or whatever it is that it'll fix me. <laughs> it'll fix it. And that's never the case. I'm a huge believer, by the way, that especially in those really early days, like do what you got to do to stay sober. Do what you got to do to stay sober. That's called harm reduction in some circles. Uh, it's called like you can't you can't bite off the whole thing at once uh, and you shouldn't. But what I'm talking about here is more allowing yourself some patience and allowing yourself a lot more time than you maybe have allotted and understanding that recovery, anything worth having, anything worth having, and nothing is worth more than recovering from an addiction if that's what you're suffering from, because most likely your life hinges on it in ways that you can and cannot measure, even if you aren't someone who went to, say, the bottom or lost a lot. The possibility of what your life could be like on the other side is probably so profound. You have no idea how, how profound it is until you have moved to the other side. There's, it's an, there, there are many unknown unknowns, if that makes sense. We, we know, you know, we're not going to have hangovers and our health is probably going to improve and we're going to sleep better. And that has all this, this wonderful cascade effect. And, you know, we probably won't say things we were, we regret and we won't black out and we'll have more energy and so on. Those are easy things to see and to grasp, but what we can't grasp is the places that will open up when we aren't sinking our spiritual energy, our emotional energy, our psychic energy into drinking and recovering from drinking. Can't possibly imagine what 
portals we will enter when that happens. So there is no, there is no shortcut to that either. There's no shortcut. Some things come fast. A lot of those things that I just rattled off, those things come quick, right? You feel better pretty quickly. Sleep better pretty quickly. Start to have a little more self-respect because you're not saying things that you don't want to be saying. <laughs> you're not making a fool of yourself, even if it's just in small ways. You're not going out of your own integrity and things like that. Those things come back fast. You can be more productive at work. My boyfriend stopped drinking right around the time he met me, and he's not someone that would qualify. The way he says it is he he didn't have whatever I have. He wasn't that that far down, but but he had something. <laughs> he did lean on it. Um, he said he he could not believe how his mornings opened up, how his he didn't have to fight through fog for the first three or four hours a day. Like that's a fast acting, fast something you notice very quickly, and that changes your days significantly. So some things happen fast, but but most things, the, the really meaningful things, the deep things, the long sustaining gifts, those, there is no shortcut for those. And be wary of anything that feels like it's going to get you there faster, that there is going to be a shortcut or that you should be there faster. I, I named some things, relationships, weight loss, or even just getting more fit, social media, achieving success. Everything that is worth having takes time and often a lot more time than we think. So what, what, this, what I want to underscore with that is that wherever you are right now is perfect because that is your point A. That is your starting point. If you can accept that wherever you are today, whatever the reality is for you, that is your point A. And if you can stand in that point A and work that point A, that's how you, that's how you make progress. That's, it's like, um, I always reiterate, someone said to me, if you want to go faster, slow down. And that was all about being in my point A. The point A for me was I wanted to drink every day, often. And it was just about all I could do to, to get through the day without drinking. And that had to be my point A. That had to be my marker for success. Sometimes it felt like all I did was get through the day and like drink a glass of water and breathe and not drink. The glass of water was even extra. <laughs> Sometimes it felt like all I did was not drink in a day. That was the only thing that went right. That was the only thing I achieved. I couldn't accomplish anything else. And I came to see that as a marker of success, like a huge one. 
And that was my point A. And the only way, every time I tried to surpass that point A or go f get out ahead of my skis and try to do more and be more and have more quicker, I either drank or I suffered. And so I learned, like, play it at point A. People who focus on point A play the long game. And the long game is where it's at. Long game is where it's at. All right, so that was point one. There are no shortcuts. And it's actually good news. It might sound like bad news, but it is good news. Because number two, the process is the gift. The process is the entire gift. So what do I mean by that? Let me take a sip. You get to hear all my swallows and everything. Okay, the process is the gift. So when I when I look back, and this this is this it tracks my whole life, not just sobriety, but I but since we're talking about sobriety, I'm going to keep it to that. When I look back on the last seven years, I don't really recall the singular sort of peak moments as being the best. The anniversaries, I've had seven birthdays, I got divorced, I switched careers, I was on TV, I published a book, I've been on bestseller lists, I started a company. All of these things are wonderful. But when I think about the most meaningful parts of those, I don't think about the peak moments. I don't think about the anniversary, uh, my sobriety date, or the birthday, or the day I was on uh, USA or Good Morning America, or even the day my book came out. I I don't think about that. I think about what comes to mind and what I feel is the process of getting there. The, the much smaller felt details, especially when they were difficult. Those quiet internal moments, or maybe those moments when I was with one other person and we witnessed each other going through something. And those are the things. The process was the gift. The peak moments are fine and you should cherish them and, and I do, but they almost never land for me. I always find peak moments to be overrated and, and then often disappointing because I can't really land in them. Uh, they And they wouldn't mean anything anyway they, if, they, if it weren't for the process of getting there. So having that, things that come to mind, like having that first exchange with someone at work when I told them I wasn't drinking and realized that I was, that that had just come out of my mouth, <laughs> that I was now somebody who said that I'm not drinking. It was an impossible thing just you know, moments or days or weeks before. And then I said it and I, I, I screwed up the courage to say it and I said it and 
it became a thing in the world. Just that one moment of conversation in my office. Or I remember texting a friend in my bed on a Friday night about plans to meet up for coffee on Saturday and I knew I would make it on time, that I would have no problem setting my alarm and being there. And how extraordinary that was because I was never that person. I could never count on myself. No one could, could count on me. That was amazing. And you know, the, <laughs> the slow, awkward, sober connection that I made with the, one of the first people I dated, you know, just those really tender, awkward moments of learning how to walk on these new legs, these new sober legs, figuring out how to set up a podcast. Like I, I had a really big podcast. Home podcast got to be so huge. We had no idea how big it would get. And there were some really incredible peak moments in that show, sitting across from Augustine Burroughs, interviewing him when he has his dogs in the background and just having this out of body surreal experience because this is one of the authors that I have read for years and just absolutely idolize. And he's there in front of my face, talking, opening his mouth and saying words to me. Like, wow, that was a moment and that was great. And then having, you know, the, the, the things though that I think of are that run where I thought of the name of the podcast and made a phone call to my co-host and said like, this is it. And we said, yeah, 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 that's it. Or creating the cover art and just fussing around in Canva for hours and hours and finding exactly the right, the right feel that, that I wanted, that we wanted. And things like that, you know, figuring out the technology and buying a microphone and figuring out how to set it up and sitting up in my daughter's room and on pillows and recording those first few episodes. Like that was, that was the juice. That process was the gift. Taking a shower when I really wanted to drink and actually feeling hot showers were one way that I figured out to unwind tension out of my body when I wanted to drink or release a craving. And that first time I figured it out, I actually felt my nervous system changing as the water rushed down and realizing I could help myself. I could help myself out of a moment. And things like that, braiding my daughter's hair without a hangover. So the process is the gift. The process is the gift. The peak stuff is great, but the process is the gift. And the process is comes from being in point A and operating in that point A and feeling the tiny win, the tiny but you know, magnificent win of making it to point A, A.1, and then A.2, <laughs> and then finally point B. That's the real stuff. And it continues to be, it continues to be, the process continues to be. I thought publishing my first book would be just the most 
extraordinary, exciting, incredible thing that could ever happen to me. And it was, it was a lifelong dream, but the process of writing it, although it exceedingly painful and lonely and full of crushing doubt, getting through that and learning like, oh, 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 this is how, this is how I can make this type of transition sentence work. Oh, 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 this is how I can wrap up this chapter. Having those, those moments where I feel myself growing and changing, those were, those were what made it extraordinary. Okay, so I think the reason the process, I've thought about this, the reason the process is the gift is because it's about the internal. It's about engaging in the mystery. And I'm very, very interested in falling in love with the mystery of life. Again, I think that is where the magic's at. I think that is what we want. I wrote a poem at the beginning of sobriety. I'll have to dig it up and post, post it in my newsletter when I send this episode out or something or have the team post it on social when we promote this episode. But it is, the poem says, how, how does it happen? You fall in love with being alive. You fall in love with life again. And I think that's why the process is the gift, is because that's where the falling in love takes place. It's the internal, it's the mystery. Whereas the peak experiences are usually about the external. They're about getting the award or achieving the accolade or having public recognition of something. And again, those things are all, that's all good. I want that stuff too. It's fine to want that stuff, but it never delivers what the internal experience delivers. And I think that's why. As Rob Bell says, <laughs> there is no it. I chased a lot of it's. If I get this person to blurb my book, if I get this person to mention me on Instagram, if I get this person to ask me to be on their podcast, if I hit the New York Times bestseller list, if I, on and on and on, you get it. If I just get that, I will know I have made it. I will be complete. I will feel whole and I will be satisfied and I will have made it, but there is no it. I've achieved some of those it's, a few of them. And the really almost frightening part about those things is that they feel really good and then you wake up the next day and you're still the same person that you were the day before. And there's no magic transformation. There's no, you know, in like Super Mario 
brothers where you get to go up, you know, now you're on level three. You get to, what is it? Someone's screaming at me about what, what it's called. When you, shit, jump lives. Oh God, it's gonna kill me. And I know it's killing some somebody out there. Anyway, it's not like that. It only, it, it lasts for a minute and it's, and it's cool. And then you're still the same person. And, and I've have, I have achieved big things when I have felt like shit on the inside. And after that big thing happens and the sort of dopamine brush has the cor- corresponding dopamine low because that's how the brain works, you feel not only as shitty as you felt before, but shittier. Because there's a disappointment that nothing has changed. So there is no it. Ravel talks about that in one of his episodes and it, and it is absolutely true. Okay, so now we are on to number three. This is kind of a quick one. Maybe, maybe it will be quick. <laughs> Listen to your gut and trust it sooner. Listen to your gut and trust it sooner. This is like an ever evolving practice and process for me. I have, getting sober allowed me to, we all have this internal guidance system and we call it our gut because the, it's, a, it's in our body, I, at least that's how I understand it and experience it and even what I would say science says. There is wisdom in our body. Our, we, are not, we are not our minds. We largely live in our minds. We can live almost all of our life thinking that what, what is happening in our mind, are, that our thoughts are the reality. The stories that we tell ourselves in our mind are are the stories that are the truth and that we can, that everything we do and everything we achieve and everything we experience and everything that's possible exists as a result of our mind. It's a very Western culture, post-industrial revolution type thinking and framework. And it's, it's, God, it's not even half the story. We are bodies. We have, we have not only bodies, but we have spirits, we have souls, and we have a collective unconscious in which we also participate. And our minds are, are wonderful. They solve problems, they can do all kinds of things, but we experience things as, as a much more integrated, interesting, layered, organism that includes the body and our intuition, also called our gut feeling, that tiny voice. Those are the words that we use to describe it. Those are often things that we can't really explain with rational thought, but we just have a knowing. We have a sense that something is true and oftentimes it goes it goes against what we thought was true it goes against what we believe what we have been doing what we believe what we think we believe and 
every single time I've had that small voice, that gut sense that something needs to happen, that I need to stop doing something, that I need to start doing something, it's always right. It's been right. It was right with alcohol. I knew it. I knew before I even allowed myself to know that it was the thing that had to go. I knew that. And it was. I knew that years before. I, I don't even know how many years before. Um, I could, in some ways, I could say I knew it when I was in college. In some ways, you know, I could say, oh, I didn't really know that until I was in my late 20s. But who cares? I knew it. It was in there. I have known that uh, throughout sobriety so many times, so many times, this person isn't good for you. This, ex- this is not where you need to be. And sometimes I would listen, but oftentimes I wouldn't. And I would, years would pass by and inevitably I was right. The situation would be, would be bad. The person would be not great for me, all of those things. And I would have to back out and it would be much harder to do it at that point. I knew that about Ambien. I knew, I knew, I knew that it wasn't, Ambien is a medication that you take for sleeping. I wrote a long piece about it. We can link to in show notes about how I took it for 10 years. And I knew at one point that if I, that I would not be able to sell my book if I didn't quit it. I knew I wouldn't be able to do the writing that I needed to do. And I was right. I finally, it was very scary. I finally let it go. And I sold my book within a couple months. Uh, I've been people. So, you know, when you have that feeling, I've had a few relationships where you're getting, you're seeming to get a lot from the relationship. You might even like each other on many levels. And I'm not talking about just romantic relationships. The ones I'm referring to are actually friendships, but you have this sense that you're either, you're not really in alignment or they don't actually have your best interests in mind or there's just something that's off. There's something that's not right about it. Or you you know for sure there's something that's not right. Something really pisses you off, but you push it away. You try not to know it because X, Y, Z, you rationalize. Um, those things, those, those relationships haven't ended well for me. And I've done that with projects, with work projects where I've done things for the wrong reasons. And, you know, because I, it would make money or because it's a quote unquote good opportunity or because it would be good publicity. Oh my gosh, that's a horrible reason to do something in and of itself. And my gut said it and I didn't trust it and my gut was right. And the most recent one is social media. I I knew, I knew, I would say as back far back as 2017 or 18 when I started writing about and talking about social media and what it was doing to me, I had the same sense that I had with quitting Ambien, 
I won't say alcohol because that was a bit different. <laughs> I didn't, really didn't want to give that up. Um, yeah, I had I had the sense that this isn't right. This isn't good. This is really, 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 really bad for me. And all the same fears, too, about letting it go and what that would mean. And no, you can't do that. That's just not the way it goes. It's not the way it's done. You can't make it without it. All of those things. Um, and years later, you know, this past summer, I finally let it go. And my gut was right. Like I knew, I knew that years and years ago. So become, I think what I want to, the way I want to say this is to become a really dedicated student of your nervous system. Notice the things that put your nervous system in a hypervigilant state. Notice the things that feel bad to your body. Notice the things that feel good to your body, that feel calming and that feel resonant and expansive and right, like a, like a good note, like hitting that beautiful chord on a guitar and the way that it resonates in your body, you can feel it all the way through. There's no resistance. Don't mistake this for, for fear, because fear is a different thing. We can often feel very afraid of things that are good for us, things that the steps that we need to take. It's more, this is a, a, a nervous system warning sign. Something that just being, have you ever had that feeling that when you're around someone that your body just hates it. There's someone that I, I was very close to at one time. Whenever I would be in their presence, my body was miserable. I felt exhausted. I felt like I was having a panic attack. I felt tense. I needed to nap for days afterwards. It just felt awful. Even anticipating being around them felt awful. Uh, notice that. <laughs> That's a good indication. Pick people who are really good for your nervous system and steer clear of people who aren't. It doesn't even have to be about them being bad or anything being wrong with them. It just doesn't work for you. Okay, and so number three was listen to your gut and trust it sooner. And that's that's a process that will, all of these are things that, that continually evolve, but especially that one. I'm learning to trust it sooner. I let go of things faster. I, am, I have much better discernment on my decisions up front. I trust my gut. The last one, the last one, number four is... Nothing will impact your life more than the people in it. Let's take a sip of coffee with that one. Nothing will impact your life more than the people in it. So some of this builds off of point three. I, ha I have... 
I have talked a lot about the fact that I'm not a joiner. I'm not even really a, I'm not a community person. I wanted to, not just with sobriety, but with all, with all kinds of things. I want to do it myself in my own way without people around me. <laughs> I think it's Brene Brown that says, I like humanity, but people, eh. And I have, I have resisted joining. I have resisted people. I have resisted community. And when I got sober, it became increasingly the case. I, I think some of that was necessary. I needed to be, go in, go in. I need to go inward and be alone and have a lot of solitude and just sort of be with myself and learn myself and get quiet. But it got to the point where I became almost a rugged individualist, a like, there's this book that I'm reading or that I, that I got and I started reading anyway, I haven't made my way through it, but it's called The Practice of Groundedness. It's a newer book and he calls it heroic individualism. And a lot of us suffer from that and want to be heroic individualists. We want to be able to do everything on our own and not be dependent on others and not uh, lean on other people and need them. I mean, there's no word that is more gross to me than being the needy, needy. Oh, don't, don't. Uh, to have someone perceive me as needy was just the worst. Big shadow word for me. So, I learned, and, and you know, not all of this was bad. Not all of this was bad. I needed to learn how to carry my own water, as they say. I had to learn how to do all kinds of things that I never learned how to do as an adult, like manage my finances and buy a car and um, everything. Take out the freaking trash. I had either relied on partners for that or I just never bothered to learn it, figured someone else would just take care of it. And I needed to learn all that stuff. I needed to do that stuff. I needed to own it. And that was all worthwhile. But it's not, that's not mutually exclusive with connection to others. And that's sort of the mistake that I make. And I, and I am, have learned that I am an extreme introvert in, a, I just had no idea. But I, I can really hole in and I can be a hermit and I can, given the, given the choice, I will almost always choose to be solo versus go out and people. But I have learned, um, and this is one, this actually came through the Enneagram for me. Uh, one of my dear friends, Jim Zartman, who's been on the show, pointed out, we did this thing where, and this speaks to the, the people in your life are being the, the most important and impactful thing. I have two very good friends, Jim and Jim, and we did, we do a regular ceremony every year where, which sounds very um, kind of weird, but 
it's really just a conversation where we sit and we bring to this conversation uh, to each person a blessing and a challenge, something that we bless them with for the year to come and something that we challenge them with for the year to come. And it's this really cool, beautiful thing. And one of the challenges that actually I think they both challenged me with this was to seek connection and community and to pursue those things. And <laughs> and I did. And and I did and it has made my life infinitely better. I got into a relationship which required me to be dependent and to allow myself to be needy now and then and to allow someone to um, be there for me. I started a company which requires a lot of help and community and collaboration and a few other things, a few other ways that this happened. But I pushed against that. And if you're someone who has also pushed against that, I this is to encourage you. I'm not saying just have more people in your life. That's not even the point. It's nothing will impact your life more than the people in it. So it's really taking so seriously, more seriously than anything else, because I did say nothing will impact your life more. And I do believe that. Taking so seriously the people you surround yourself with. You become them. I think we've probably all heard that line about you become an average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I do believe that's true. If you're around people that are expansive and growing and seeking and are willing to have honest, big, meaningful conversations and they're going to push you a little harder and you're going to push them and they want for you the the very best things and they can hold up it, the image of you before you can see it um, in the direction of your dreams and your deepest longings man you are going to it's going to be possible to get there. So much of the, the most important um, part of becoming and, and having this life that I really cherish so deeply, so much of what's made that possible is the people that I've surrounded myself with who, my friend Jim, uh, also Jim Zartman says, there is sanity in community. And if there is, it's, this is why recovery communities are important. This is why any community is important because we can't do it by ourselves. We can't, and we're not supposed to. Cause we're, have you ever heard that saying that Anne Lamott says like the, 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 the good thing is that we don't all go crazy at the same time. Like we all lose it. We're all misguided here and there. And I'm misguided 
a lot and any number of times throughout the day, but I have good people in my life who I can test things against and share and, and know enough about my life that they can, they can keep me on the better side of middle. And that's what we do for each other. There's sanity and community. So choose the people that you surround yourself with so intentionally. And oftentimes this means letting go of people that aren't good for your nervous system, for people that are dragging the climate of your life down. So I think I will leave, I think I will leave it with that. Oh, I do wanna say that what goes with that, nothing will impact your life more than the people in it, that has a lot to do with how you show up too. So do whatever you have to do to become someone who is capable of relating to others in a healthy way. Do whatever you gotta do. It's the best investment you'll make. Because it's not always about other people. It's half about other people and half about us. And we're 100% responsible for our half, right? So do the therapy, do the learning, figure out your boundaries. Let some people go. Do whatever you need to do to heal so that you can be the kind of person who improves the quality of life for those around you and someone who is capable. The, the, most, the most important work I have done is, I wanna make sure this is true before I say it. It was very important to me. Well, it was the, the deepest pain that I had felt in my life throughout my life was the pain of romantic relationships. The result of dysfunction that was part of my childhood and my own dysfunction and just the extraordinary pain that that caused for me and for others. It was the thing beneath the thing in sobriety. It was underneath the alcohol, underneath the food, underneath the body stuff, underneath everything. All of those behaviors, the, the original wound was relationships. And that was the, the center <laughs> of the journey. And the most important work that I did was around healing that, understanding that, and doing everything I could so that I could both show up for a partner in a way that I wanted to, in a way that I could be proud of, in a way that would be transforming and healing for them, and being able to receive that as well from someone who is healthy. And I met my current partner last year and I remember when I met him, I had a conversation with the gyms 
And the other Jim, Jim Trick, said to me, he is your great reward. He is the great reward for all of your work. And I think that was very true. And having him in my life has been, without a doubt, one of the greatest gifts of my life. It has made my life better and more meaningful in ways that I could not have counted or imagined. So, yeah, nothing will impact your life more than the people in it and do whatever you need to do so that you can have healthy, meaningful relationships. I'm going to leave it at that. Wherever you are on your path, whether it's drinking that is your thing or something else, remember that we all have a thing. And I'm going to end with the nine things that I'm writing about in my book and what we say in every TLC meeting. That seems a fitting way to end. One, it is not your fault. Two, it is your responsibility. Three, it is unfair that this is your thing. Four, this is your thing. Five, this will never stop being your thing until you face it. Six, you can't do it alone. Seven, only you can do it. Eight, you are loved. And nine, we will never stop reminding you of these things. I will never stop reminding you of these things. All right, bye. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5 please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.